Hey everybody, I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. In tonight's special bonus session, we're going to conclude our thoughts on The White Rider and talk a little about the news, the big news, shaking the Tolkien world to its very firmament this last week, that Amazon is currently engaged in pre-development for a well, <laughs> the news says a Lord of the Rings TV show, but a careful reading reveals that, in fact, no, it is not going to be a Lord of the Rings TV show. It is going to be some other kind of Tolkien show. We're going to talk a little about that then. As I say, we're going to catch up with the slides that were left behind in our, our hasty uh, discussion of Ents and Entwives and the return of Gandalf and his reconnection with Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn here on the fringes of the Fangorn Forest. Lots to discuss tonight, though hopefully this is going to be a slightly shorter session than usual. Hopefully we're going to be done and out of here in an hour. Let's see how that works out, shall we? There's a reason that I've entitled tonight's session Wise Fool, both because it relates to Gandalf's dialogue in tonight's reading, but also because it relates to me and my hope to get through this in an hour and the ridiculous speculation that I'm going to be engaged with, uh, engaged in with regard to the Amazon adaptation. Let's talk about all of that. Why don't we? Welcome to Becca and to Leslie and to Angela and to Heroes and Bards and to R. Palmer is joining us and Lynn and Gosh. Lots of people here tonight on this Sunday evening. This is a fun bonus show. I will say right up front for those of you who don't make it all the way to the end of tonight's session that there will not be a regular Thursday session this week because of Thanksgiving here in the US. Instead, we're going to pull it forward day and we're going to meet on Wednesday evening to talk about, well, to talk about the next part of the story in the, in, in the King of the Golden Hall. We're going to uh, pivot wildly away from the grandest excess from the dizzying heights of Tolkien's Legendarium and arguably, as we're going to discuss this evening, one of the largest and most ambitious, one of the most mythic things that Tolkien does in the entire span of The Lord of the Rings to some more mundane politics, I suppose, to a more direct conflict against the shadow. There's lots to come from our discussion of the two towers, but let's begin with our discussion of Amazon. In fact, let's not begin with our discussion of Amazon. Let's begin with the other piece of Tolkien news, which is almost certainly not unrelated. This last week, it was revealed that Christopher Tolkien has resigned from his position in the Tolkien estate. This is going to be a, this is going to signify most likely a, a marked shift in the relationship between the Tolkien estate and the wilder world. Christopher Tolkien, for much of his academic career, for much of his authorial career, has been, in effect, the sole custodian of his father's legacy. It is Christopher's, uh, it is Christopher's work that has led to the entire history of Middle-earth series, this 12-volume series analyzing basically every word that exists today of Tolkien's original work. It is thanks to Christopher that we've had so much material related to Tolkien's Legendarium in the years since the professor's death, but Christopher Tolkien is currently 93 years old. I discussed a couple of months ago, back when... Um, when the Baron and Luthien book, which I think you can see behind me on the shelf here, when the Baron and Luthien book was released, I discussed uh, Christopher Tolkien's foreword to that volume in which he says that this is the last book that he's going to work on. This is the last book that he's going to publish. It is pretty much the last book that that could be wrung out of the uncompleted and, uh, and fragmentary remains of, of Tolkien's body of work. But more importantly, it is the last book that Christopher Tolkien is going to work on because he is 93 years old and and these books take a long time to prep. And we discussed at the time how this felt very much like 
the passing of an age, how this feels in some sense like the transition between the third and fourth ages, right? This is the discussion we're going to have right at the end of the Lord of the Rings, right at the end of the return of the king. What does the world look like now? What does the, the more modern world look like? Well, it looks hopeful and it looks positive, but it is a little less magical than once it was. And I think many of us feel that way about the departure of Christopher Tolkien from the Tolkien estate, particularly because that news is accompanied by the news of Amazon developing this TV series. It should be noted that Christopher Tolkien actually filed the paperwork to depart from the Tolkien estate back in August. It has just been, you know, processed. We have just caught up with it now, which is why the announcements are coming out this week. But it is, I'm sure, no coincidence that a new adaptation of Tolkien's work is in the works and Christopher Tolkien is no longer directly involved in the Tolkien estate. I'm sure that those two things are connected. Christopher Tolkien, for those of you who don't know, has been has been ruthlessly protective of his father's legacy, as of course he should be. Tolkien actually negotiated the movie rights to much of his work, to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, during his lifetime. He actually signed those contracts himself, but that was it. And the limits placed upon the adaptation of Tolkien's work are very strict indeed. There was a long discussion that was had prior to Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy about what kinds of material he was able to use. He couldn't, in the, the process of adapting either The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit trilogies, he couldn't touch the Silmarillion. That was completely out of bounds. There was nothing there that he could pull in because he simply didn't have the rights to that material. He did, though, have the rights to The Lord of the Rings, and that includes the appendices of The Lord of the Rings, which gives, in large part, a kind of brief version of much of the history of Middle-earth. There are plenty of stories which are not told in The Lord of the Rings per se, which are still available for adaptation, which was how we got things like the White Council and the assault on Dol Guldur in the Hobbit trilogy. There's a lot of extra material there that Peter Jackson was absolutely allowed to use. Now, what does that mean for Amazon? Well, let's take a quick look. The original, uh, the original press release, I got this account from Deadline, but this is representative of, uh, of press releases that were all over the internet as this news broke. Quote, the Lord of the Rings original series, a prequel to Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, will be produced by Amazon Studios in cooperation with the Tolkien Estate and Trust, HarperCollins, and New Line Cinema, a division of Warner Brothers Entertainment which produced the hugely successful Lord of the Rings movie franchise. Fans of the book, or, you know, anyone capable of parsing a sentence successfully, will see that there is, in fact, an incongruity in that very first clause. The Lord of the Rings original series, a prequel to Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring... Well, those two things are incompatible, right? You can't have a Lord of the Rings series, which is a prequel to The Fellowship of the Ring, for, I mean, obvious and self-evident reasons. So one of the things that we're going to discuss in this session is, what is this show going to look like? Of course, people are super excited. Tolkien fans are super excited because this could be the most viable forum for a series devoted to the Silmarillion, you know, the ancient history of Arda. Are we going to begin with the Ainulindale? Are we going to begin with the, the creation of the world and the coming of the, the Valar and the Maiar into the world? Almost certainly not, for a couple of reasons. It doesn't seem as though the Silmarillion has been independently licensed. It seems as though this material is still going to be based upon the Lord of the Rings. That is what, uh, that is accounted for by the involvement of New Line Cinema, which still holds the adaptation rights to The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Not specifically TV adaptation rights, but movie adaptation rights for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So what are we going to get? Well... 
in part, and I should preface all of this, of course, by saying that as of this time, Amazon has not attached a writer or a director to the series at all. This is in pre-development. I don't think it's likely that we're going to see a Lord of the Rings series prior to, gosh, 2019, maybe like the fall of 2019, maybe 2020 feels a lot more likely because these things take a good long while. But much more importantly than that, we're dealing with fantastic sums of money. It is rumored this week that Amazon spent $250 million buying the rights for the series. Buying the rights. That's not production cost. That's not, you know, hiring fees. That's nothing but the right to produce this series, which means that they are expecting return on investment. They are expecting this to be a significant hit because... Otherwise, why would you spend this amount of money? They've announced that it's a, a multi-season deal. And Game of Thrones, the last six episodes of Game of Thrones, which will air next year, the last six episodes of Game of Thrones have an estimated budget of $15 million apiece. That is a lot. That is an unconscionable amount for a TV show. But the problem is that Game of Thrones has now set the bar at that level. If this show doesn't look as good as Game of Thrones it is going to be immediately derided as a cheap knockoff of Game of Thrones, and no one wants that. That means that in practice, if you roll in you know, a multi-season commitment, and you roll in a reasonable budget, and you roll in promotional costs and everything else, and if this rumored rights fee is, is accurate, that means that Amazon is investing somewhere in the region of a half a billion dollars on this TV series. And that means that it's not going to be the Silmarillion. You guys, we're not going to get the story of Turin Turambar. We're not going to get any stories of Numenor in the Second Age. We're not going to even get the deep history of the Third Age. I guarantee the reason that this is being promoted as a Lord of the Rings series is that it is going to be Lord of the Rings adjacent. It kind of has to be. Because if you can't market it as Lord of the Rings adjacent, then you are going to drive away many, many people who have enjoyed the Peter Jackson movies, both the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit trilogy, and who want a TV show if not set in that world exactly, then at least adjacent to that world. This is going to be huge. Uh, Sharon Tal Iguado, head of scripted series at Amazon Studios, said, quote, The Lord of the Rings is a cultural phenomenon that has captured the imagination of generations of fans through literature and the big screen. We are honored to be working with the Tolkien Estate and Trust, HarperCollins, and New Line on this exciting collaboration for television and are thrilled to be taking the Lord of the Rings fans on a new epic journey in Middle-earth. That suggests to me a real intentionality. We are talking to fans of the Lord of the Rings. So what does that mean? Well, for my money, and as I say, this is all rampant speculation. There's really no insight that I can offer here beyond common sense and having been around television now for a full decade and watching the mechanics of television and looking at how extraordinary this uh, this amount of money, this, this financial commitment from Amazon is. I should say that Amazon has previously... Uh, it has previously spent, excuse me, $80 million on the six-episode Woody Allen show, Crisis in Six Scenes. It has spent $70 million for Matt Weiner's eight-episode series, The Romanoffs. And it spent $160 million for two seasons of David O. Russell's unnamed series, which was then axed after Amazon had spent $40 million on it. They spent $40 million and then killed that show, which, I mean, that's television for you, you guys. But still, $250 million for a rights purchase, even if it's half that, you know, even if it's just $125 million for the rights purchase, that is still a fantastic amount of money, a fantastic commitment for Amazon at this time, for their original programming department. 
that means that we're going to need a title. That means that we are going to need something that right off the bat enchants and entrances the Lord of the Rings fans in the audience. That's the only reason you would make this show, is if you believe that you have a built-in audience for what comes next. And the answer, of course, of course, is young Aragorn. And I know that a lot of people have been talking about the adventures of young Aragorn this last week, and it seems like the obvious pull, but the more that I think about it, the more I am convinced that actually there's a great deal of potential here. There's a huge amount of material that is just waiting to be tapped in the story of, of young Aragorn. I want to pull here from the... Uh, from the <laughs> oh, uh, Angela is recommending the, the Man in the High Castle, yes, uh, which I, I hear wonderful things about. I haven't seen the adaptation. That, that book is extraordinary. I haven't yet seen that adaptation. But of course, Amazon is making inroads into the world of prestige drama. It is challenging networks like HBO and Showtime and stars in the, the in-house production of prestige drama. That's a great thing for Amazon to be doing. And the more prestige drama we get, the better. The more players there are in this very rarefied space, the better for everyone. Um, old Toby is saying, if it's not a Shadrach and Gorbag buddy comedy set in Orc School, I'm not watching. Okay, I would totally be into that, but then unfortunately, I, I don't know that we can match the uh, the prequel to the Fellowship of the Ring time frame. There, I, I guess we could. No, I guess we could. There's nothing stopping us from from going back to you know, twenty nine eighty of the Third Age. A young Shatrat, <laughs> young Shagrat is is finding his way in in what uh, Barador U and and falls in with the wrong people. Yeah, no, there's definitely a story there. If nothing else, I guarantee there's fan fiction about it. I want to read this uh, comment from R. Palmer here in the Crowdcast chat. I'm thinking it actually should be about the Second Age. After all, the prologue of the Fellowship kind of established that history already. You could begin the season with the elves establishing Eregion and the arrival of Anatar. For those who haven't read the books or played the Shadow of Mordor, no one will know who Anatar is. That means once the rings are created, it could be such a huge reveal that Anatar and Sauron are one and the same. And then you could show the war between Sauron and the elves, the death of Celebrimbor, and their ultimate salvation at the hands of the Numenorians. Then you could go into the fall of Numenor, Crowdcast Chat is scrolling here, and introduce Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion. From there you could witness the birth of Gondor and Arnor, and then you'd finish with the Battle of the Last Alliance. Yes. You're absolutely right, R. Palmer. You're absolutely right. There is a story there. There are stories throughout the Silmarillion. I would love, and of course, to name-check them as I name-check them every week, apparently, on there and back again. I would love an Ale and Yvonne series. I would love the Aina Lindale. Don't get me wrong. If Amazon announces, no, actually, we thought about it, and we're just going to do the Silmarillion. We're going to do it in 10 years, and we're just going to do the Silmarillion, and it's going to be great. I am so very in for that but I wonder how many people would be. The biggest problem that is challenging, uh, the biggest problem that is facing people who want to adapt the stories of the Second Age, the biggest problems are narrative. What we need is a character. What we need is a protagonist. We need a story that we can follow. There really haven't been successful TV shows where we have a season or two where we're in the POV of a certain character who's having a certain adventure, and then we hard cut out of that story and switch our focus entirely to someone else. What we need, and what I'm sure Amazon knows, is a beginning, a middle, and an end. We need something that is a complete story unto itself. And this is less about the kind of uh, the economic, the, the business arguments, the commercial arguments for this show. This is more about the narrative argument, right? If you're telling a story, you need a story to tell. And the tighter the focus is on that story, the, the stronger and more elemental that story is, the more compelling it is inevitably going to be. Yes, I would love a 10-season series for the Silmarillion, but actually what you're dealing with there are four or five or six or 10 miniseries. You're just doing a series of shorter stories. 
it would be great to have a four-part Baron and Luthien series, a six-part Baron and Luthien series, a 12-part, you know, series about the Silmarils themselves. Let's have the story of the Silmarils. All of that would be great, but we're not then getting the kind of, of TV industry approach to storytelling, right? We're not getting what we want from Game of Thrones. A cast of thousands in Game of Thrones, absolutely, but it has a defined beginning, middle, and an end. And though it is in some ways reductive and trite and, yes, absolutely a little lazy to immediately compare any adaptation of Tolkien's work to Game of Thrones, we can't exaggerate, we can't overestimate how much Game of Thrones has changed the shape of television and how definitive Game of Thrones will be to any fantasy TV series that comes along in the years to come. Any kind of quasi-historical TV series that comes along, any speculative fiction TV series that comes along in the years to come. Game of Thrones has absolutely set the bar, both for good and, of course, for ill. So what are we expecting? I am expecting, as I catch up here, uh, we've got, oh, let's get some more other suggestions here. Uh, as I scroll back, gosh, you guys are, are chatty tonight. Um, Jackie says, the Lord of the Rings characters have to be involved somehow. I feel the same is true. Possibly for licensing reasons, right? If, if not only for, for narrative reasons there. Uh, Seastar says, the orc school plot seconded. Lynn says, the early days of the Shire. Stephen Brown says, nobody for the travels of Gandalf. Uh, let me see. <laughs> Leslie's calling out R. Palmer for spoilers there on what happens in the second age. That's, that's wonderful. I like that a lot. Uh, Jackie asks, would they try to rope in the Jackson film actors? Ah, gosh, I wouldn't, given the choice, I wouldn't. If for no other reason, then as soon as you do that, your budget inflates wildly. It's not to say that, you know, Dominic Monaghan or Billy Boyd have been particularly busy in recent years, but I think that once you start saying, well, no, obviously, if we're going to have... Gollum, we have to hire Andy Serkis. A, yes, there's $100 million gone right then, not just for CG effects, but for the fees paid to Andy Serkis for appearing in this series. But more importantly, as soon as you do that, everyone else who performed in the series knows that they can charge whatever they want. They know that, that Viggo Mortensen can get paid. He's not going to take this job for scale. He's going to take this job for a huge amount of money. And presumably, Amazon, while it is willing to throw a lot of money at the series, is not going to throw unlimited money. As Skipa says, yes, the, the fees for the film actors would be insane. Angela says, a new story per season. And anthology series, I completely agree, right? That would be great, but I just don't think it's the big budget hit that Amazon is looking for. Now, if this series is a hit, and there has been some speculation this week and some ambiguous language in the original press release that says that actually they're not developing one show, they're developing two shows, or I guess developing more than one show, it's entirely possible that if this core, core series is a success... Well, then we can get the six-part Baron and Luthien miniseries. Then we can get the story of, of Turin Turinbar. Then we can get, you know, we can, we can bounce around all over the place. Then we can get the founding of the Shire. We can get the story of Bull Roar Took. We can get, you know, there are innumerable stories that we can tell at that point. But for me, if I'm looking at this, if I'm adapting this, if Amazon comes to me and says, okay, we're going to give you $150 million, give us 10 episodes of something, I look to young Aragorn. And the reason that I look to young Aragorn, let me show you the, uh, the slide that I have painstakingly prepared here, which really should just be a picture of Viggo Mortensen's face now that I think about it. I, I should just show you the picture of Viggo Mortensen's face and say, but ah, uh, ah, uh, shouldn't this do it? Here we go. This is my pitch or, or my kind of uh, framework here for a series that, that I'm kind of calling in my head Estelle, the young Aragorn adventures. Aragorn is born in 2931 of the Third Age. He is at the age of two orphaned. His parents are killed, and he is fostered by Elrond at Rivendell. So Aragorn, Estelle, as he is known in Sindarin, that means hope. That is his only name, by the way. He is only referred to as Estelle. He doesn't know anything about who he is for his, his early life. So at the age of two, he is fostered by Elrond at Rivendell. 
2941, Bilbo finds the One Ring, the Battle of Five Armies leads to a restored Erebor, and then in 2942, Bilbo and Gandalf visit Rivendell on their way back from Erebor. So this is the, the time frame of The Hobbit, right? In 2949, Gandalf and Balin visit the Shire. You remember that little postscript from the pages of The Hobbit? But this is where our story gets interesting. In 2951, when Aragorn is 19 years old, Sauron sends the Nazgul to retake Dol Guldur. So this is, what, 16 years after Sauron is, after the necromancer is driven out of Dol Guldur by the White Council, after he feigns to flee and, and retreats to Mordor, retreats to Mordor, goes to Mordor and starts rebuilding his power. 16 years after that, when Aragorn is 19, having lived his whole life, as far as he is concerned, in Rivendell, under the name Estelle, knowing nothing about his parentage, nothing about his lineage, the shadow begins to fall across Middle-earth once more. And Sauron sends three of the Nazgul to Dol Guldur to retake that ancient forest, uh, that ancient fortress in the fastness of Mirkwood. Then, in 2952, at the age of 20, Aragorn is told by Elrond his true name and ancestry. No. You're not just some kid. You're not just some refugee that we took in here. You are Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, wielder of the sword that was broken. He's given the fragments of the sword that was broken again at this point. Around this time, too, when he is 20 years old, he meets Arwen for the first time, who has recently returned from Lothlorien, where she was spending time with her mother. She returns to Rivendell to spend time with her father, and of course, Aragorn and Arwen fall in love. But at this point, having been told his name, having been told his role in the world, his inheritance, his, his, his destiny almost, Aragorn leaves Rivendell. He goes off to become chieftain of the Dúnedain. He, I suppose, is chieftain of the Dúnedain, but he goes off to, to take up that role. That is in 2952 of the Third Age. Then in 2956, Aragorn meets Gandalf for the first time, and in 2980, Aragorn visits Lothlorien and meets Arwen again. At this point, they are engaged to be married, though Elrond reserves permission for Aragorn to marry his daughter until he is king again of Gondor and of Arnor, of this unified kingdom of North and South. This, for context, is 20 years, 21 years before the long-expected party in the Shire, Okay. So most of these events are taking place between the events of The Hobbit and the events of The Lord of the Rings. The shadow is lengthening across Middle-earth once more, and we have the better part of 30 years there, 28 years after Aragorn comes into his name, comes into his inheritance, and goes back to Lothlorien and basically sets aside his life of adventure, I suppose. During this time, he is traveling the entire world. He is serving in the armies of King Thengel of Rohan, Thengel King of, of Rohan, and Stuart Ecthelion II of Gondor. He is traveling out across the world under the name Thorongil, Eagle of the Star. Thorongil, Eagle of the Star, which is, by the way, also a great potential name for the series if I wouldn't advise against naming a series in, in Elven. But for the better part of 30 years, he is traveling the world. He's fighting in armies. He's taking up causes. He's doing good. And he's doing good in the name, specifically, of Estelle. He's doing good in the not under the name of Estelle, but in the name of hope, right? He's fighting for hope in a world that is getting darker. And in this time, we have... Gandalf, and we have Legolas, and we have other characters that, we'll that we are familiar with. There's a huge span of time here into which we can insert any number of great adventures. And there are two specific ideas that I have. I suppose the, the biggest specific idea that I have is actually our 
our opening scene, right? If Amazon gave me $150 million and said, okay, 10 seasons of TV, go, what's your opening scene? My opening scene is Rivendell. And it looks a lot like it looks in the movies. It looks very familiar to us. Not in a way that's going to, you know, cross any lines of copyright. But I think the realization of Rivendell felt so true to me as a lover of the book, so so authentic to me as a lover of the book that I would be hard-pressed to revise it significantly. But we open on Rivendell, and we open on Rivendell in 2942. Aragorn is nine years old. He's, sorry, Estelle is nine years old. He's been there for his entire life. And we must remember, this is Rivendell, okay? This is a, a community, a sanctuary community populated entirely by elves. How many kids are there in Rivendell? Probably none. Well, one, definitely, Estelle, but probably no elven children. And the thing that I am reminded of most powerfully is not Game of Thrones, but rather the opening of this year's Wonder Woman movie, where Diana, the only child on this island of, of, of warrior Amazons, is is raucous and is wild and is untamed and wants to learn all that there is to learn. She wants to grow herself into her name and into her, her position, into her legacy, this legacy that is waiting for her, even though she herself doesn't yet know it. So in 2942, we have young Aragorn. He's nine years old. He's cute as a button. He's barreling through Rivendell. He's, you know, upsetting apple apple barrels and, you know, crashing into people who are carrying things. And it's just this, this, he's probably stolen some trinket of insignificant value, or he's, you know, he's absolutely enchanted by a, a messenger pigeon that has just arrived. Some kind of, you know, adventuresome, you know, story for, for Aragorn here in our cold open. He's racing through and he crashes headlong into one Bilbo Baggins. And that is a moment of connection. That is a moment that introduces us to Aragorn perfectly, connects us to Bilbo, connects us out to the outer world. Can't you just imagine that scene where he barrels into this person who's like the same height as he is, and they crash to the ground and they get back to their feet and there's huffing and puffing and we're not seeing anyone's face clearly. And then this figure, this mysterious figure turns around and says, well there, Bilbo Baggins, at your service. And that's our introduction to this world. That's our introduction to this character. And then we get a montage, right? We get the, the, the action montage, possibly even over the credits, over the extended first episode credits of this show where Aragorn is training. Having been told stories of Smaug and the lands to the east and the Shire and the lands to the west by Bilbo, having had his mind open for the first time to the world beyond Rivendell, Aragorn trains. He learns all that he can learn from the scholars and the warriors of Rivendell. And then we really begin our story when he turns 20, having fallen in love with Armin. You know, you can almost imagine this, this super romantic scene where Arwen is, I don't know, singing in the moonlight and Aragorn's just like lounging and being cool because he's human and he's like not one of these staid and stuffy elves. He's great and he knows it. He's kind of, you know, he's, he's a little Aladdin-ish, I suppose, from the beginning. <laughs> you know, he's kind of street ratty, but also, you know, the heir of the throne. So that, that's kind of fine. And they're connecting and they're obviously in love. And that's when Elrond says, hey, just, you know, because this is the right thing to do, but also to forestall any more of this, you should probably know who you are. You should probably know that you're the chieftain of the Dúnedain and your people, your people, are scattered across the north waiting for you. Go out into the world. Go make your mark. This isn't a place for you any longer. That's our inciting incident. And as I say, we can bring in other characters from the Tolkien Legendarium. We can bring in other characters who will appear in The Lord of the Rings. This gives us 
a functional open that is connected inextricably to the Tolkien stories that everyone knows, that is connected to The Hobbit, that is connected to The Lord of the Rings, but it also gives us a vague shape. You know, we can follow Aragorn Knowing as we know that by the time he is 90 years old, Aragorn is going to look like he's 40, we can actually follow this character pretty much through his entire career. We can even fudge the timeline a little bit, but he can go off to Rohan and have adventures in a place with which we are familiar, but with characters who are new. He can go off to Gondor. He goes off to Gondor and meets young Boromir who's barreling around, you know, young Faramir who's barreling around. We have so much potential here for stories which are self-contained, which can be relatively ambitious, as I said this whole time the shadow was lengthening you know a couple of years after this Orodruin you know sparks to life again the tower of Barad-dûr is being constructed the darkness is falling it is entirely possible even that when Aragorn is is racing through Rivendell in that opening scene and he crashes into Bilbo well what if the ring flies out of Bilbo's pocket and rolls across the floor Maybe there's just a beat there. We introduce the notion of the ring and it sticks with Aragorn. Maybe it's in the back of his head for the rest of his life. These are just obviously crazy ideas. This is crazy rampant speculation. But this is, to respond to the 50 people who emailed me this last week, this is what I would do, honestly. I think this has the most narrative potential. It is both, I suppose, what I would do and what I expect Amazon to do. And now that I have exposed myself in this act of public creativity, I'm going to look at the Crowdcast chat and see what you guys think of all of this. Um, uh, Jackie says, Elrond's also been fostering the chieftains for generations, so I'd imagine there's some sort of leadership boot, boot camp in place, right? That would be amazing. That would be fantastic. Yes. Good. Oh, good. We're, we're positive on this. This is pretty good. Oh, this is so good. Heroes and Bards. Maybe little Aragorn staying up late to spy on the company of dwarves. The only thing... That, that would make me hesitate about that is that canonically, if we're going by the timeline in the books, Aragorn doesn't meet Gandalf yet. So, but certainly, right? That sequence when we're off reading the moon runes the year before, uh, where, where Gandalf and Thorin and, and Bilbo are in the company of Elrond, maybe that's an opportunity for young Aragorn to spy on the rest of the dwarves and see what dwarves are. How cool is that? This is so fun. I would also say, just as a general principle, that... I would not expect Amazon to obey slavishly the timeline laid forth in the book. I would expect them to respect the primary beats of both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. There's little point in doing an adaptation about this world if you're not going to respect the things that everyone knows about The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, right? This isn't about the Tolkien scholars among us. This is about the general fans of, of fantasy literature, right? You know that, that Bilbo has the ring. You know that the ring is the one ring. You know that the ring turns you invisible. You know that someday Frodo is going to come into his inheritance and he's going to take the ring to Mount Doom and so on and so forth. You know roughly now, just by cultural osmosis, what Gollum looks like and how Gollum acts. I wouldn't expect any major deviation from that. But I would also absolutely expect there to be minor deviations in the incidental material. For example, during this period, Aragorn meets Legolas somewhere, sometime. We don't know any more about it. As far as I'm aware, huh. Yes, to the best of my recall right now without a timeline in front of me, I don't know when Aragorn and Legolas meet. It wouldn't surprise me or upset me unduly if also Aragorn and Gimli meet during this sequence. Yes, okay, that throws off canonically the, the New Line movies, the Peter Jackson movies, but it would also give us an opportunity to tap into a dynamic that we've seen before. Also, and I should emphasize this fully, I would expect to see, I would be shocked if we did not see much more diversity. I would absolutely expect to see more female characters in this show. It wouldn't surprise me at all if... 
20-year-old uh, Aragorn, trained by the elves, incredibly skilled, you know, the returning king, chieftain of the Dúnedain, but kind of unfamiliar with the ways of his people. If he returns to the Dúnedain, if he returns to the rangers and is paired up immediately with, well, what is the character's name in Game of Thrones? Igret? Igret? You know, the you-know-nothing Jon Snow girl? I would absolutely expect that dynamic. That's kind of a first-thought, first-pass dynamic. Hopefully it would be when I say better and more sophisticated than that, I don't mean that that's necessarily just a bad relationship. I mean that that's been done. But I would expect there to be many more female characters, and I would certainly hope to see that in this show, too. Um, okay, so this is what I would hope to see. This is what I would I would expect. Oh, Galadriel and Celeborn. Yes, of course, we can go all the way through to Lothlorien, right? We know that Aragorn after 30 years of adventures, goes to Lothlorien and meets again with Arwen. But if Arwen is in Rivendell for that whole period, he can go to Lothlorien anytime he likes, basically. We can have him meet Galadriel and Celeborn, have him meet uh, many of the other elves, many of the, the incidental elves that are, are named in the, uh, the Lothlorien chapter of the book and kind of forge those relationships. As I say, we can definitely... Rohan and Gondor, that's actually canonical, right? That's actually textual. We know that he's there. Um, so there's, there's tons of material here that we can delve into. This is my pitch. Let me see here. Um, gosh... The video is having problems. Uh, the video looks okay. The diagnostic here tells me that the video is okay, so you should be able to just hit refresh and everything should be all right. I do hope that your internet is holding up. Um, Rayla Lynn says, oh, I love this. Rayla Lynn says, I want a young Boromir. Family drama battles a touch of better call Saul because sadly we know his future fate. No, that's awful, Rayla Lynn. Can you imagine? Wow. I hadn't honestly thought about Boromir as... Gosh, a Boromir-Faramir family drama, right? Like like a saga? That could be really great. Those two characters opposed? Oh, that's that's actually very good, yeah. I still, there's no reason we can't do that within the frame of an Aragorn story, particularly if we fudge the timeline just a little bit. But yes, that, that's a very strong idea. I like that a lot. Uh, Gilrain and Arwen and Boromir's mother would be great female characters too. I really like the idea of pulling in Arwen, Jackie. I really like the idea of Arwen being a if not constant, then at least recurring presence in Aragorn's life. But let's be honest, we're going to want Aragorn to have romantic entanglements. We're going to want romance in this show, not least of all because Game of Thrones has set a bar of expectation regarding the sexy. We're going to want some romantic interactions for Aragorn, and Arwen is going to be very difficult in that regard, mostly because we're never going to be able to, if, if we're respecting the Lord of the Rings, we're never going to be able to finish that story properly within the frame of this TV show. So I could expect Aragorn's departure from Rivendell to be in the mode of exile almost you know we can expect that 15 years from now 20 years from now he's going to have some kind of rapprochement with with Elrond they're going to you know make peace or Elrond is going to reveal actually I knew that you and Arwen were destined to be together you just needed to go off and do the thing that you had to do you had to go off and become the man that you are we can have some kind of, of beat there but I would absolutely expect there to be some romantic entanglement surrounding Aragorn and I'm not necessarily against that the only way that that works is if Yes, he is in love with Arwen. You know, yes, he falls in love with her. It's love at first sight, as it so often is in the works of Tolkien. But if he doesn't expect to see her again or doesn't think that he has any future with her again, and then maybe there's some cute girl ranger and there's some pressure from the other Dunedain saying, you know, we're dying out, dude. You're the king. You should probably have an heir, right? We can do something in that direction to kind of, of ease our discomfort with Aragorn dating or having a relationship with anyone who isn't Arwen. That's pretty much where I am, yeah. Good. Good. All right.
Oh, okay. No, we're getting some pushback. We're getting some definite pushback. Uh, the obligatory nudity notes, uh, so, so Sundare. Yeah, please, let's not go in that direction. Please, let's not go in that direction, Amazon. Um, and that's not... I'm not just being a prude about that, right? Like, there is a tonal distinction between Game of Thrones and The Lord of the Rings. There is a tonal distinction between the works of George R.R. R. Martin and the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. These are very different things. And I don't want this to be the CW show version of The Lord of the Rings. I think there is a story that you could do there, but I don't want this to be it. I want it to still be as mythic as Tolkien would have intended. You know, if he'd sat down and written the, the stories of, of Estelle, the story, the adventures of young Aragorn, the, it would have been consistent with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And I want it to still be consistent with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So I would expect a lot of you know, longing looks and, and again, you know, attraction at first sight. That's kind of the dynamic that I would want rather than the, yes, gratuitous game of, uh, gratuitous and relentless Game of Thrones nudity. Yes. Good. Seastar uh, says, I don't want romance on the show or any show or any book. I'm a romance Grinch. Um, I'm afraid that the TV marketing is probably not going to, to honor your wishes in this regard, but yes, I see what you mean. I do see what you mean. Um, Yes, and Amazon is, of course, much, much, much more restrained than HBO. I think that's, uh, and, and honestly, financially, commercially, there is a potential market there, right? This is Game of Thrones for people who don't like the nudity and the violence. This is a PG-13 version of Game of Thrones. Not bad. Amazon doesn't have the same, <sighs> isn't honoring the same sunk cost fallacy when it comes to, you know, adult programming that HBO and that stars and that Showtime to a certain extent are. Amazon gets to be a little more flexible. It gets to take that Netflix route, uh, that Netflix route, excuse me, where it can basically do whatever it wants on a per show basis. So yeah, yeah, that might work. Good. Okay. Let's, uh, yes, total difference on purpose between Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, says Angela Lurie. I completely agree. I completely honor that. Yes. Good. Good. All right. That is going to do it. I spent way more time on that than I, I intended to, but it's such a good idea, right? I'm, I'm really into this idea. And as I say, I fully expect this to happen. Let's move into our discussion of chapter five of The White Rider. We covered a couple of slides from this last time in our, in our last session. We talked about... Um, the the uh, the the coming again of this mysterious or the coming for the first time as we will find out in tonight's reading of this mysterious figure who gradually and slowly reveals his name and we're going to get more backstory now gandalf is back you guys and he's got a story to tell what do you wish to know said aragorn all that has happened since we parted on the bridge would be a long tale will you not first give us news of the hobbits did you find them and are they safe no, I did not find them, said Gandalf. There was a darkness over the valleys of Emin Mool, and I did not know of their captivity until the eagle told me. The eagle, said Legolas. I have seen an eagle high and far off. The last time was four days ago above the Emin Mool. Yes, said Gandalf. That was Gwaihir, the Wind Lord, who rescued me from Orthanc. I sent him before me to watch the river and gather tidings. His sight is keen, but he cannot see all that passes under hill and tree. Some things he has seen, and others I have seen myself. The ring has now passed beyond my help, or the help of any of the company that set out from Rivendell. Very nearly it was revealed to the enemy, but it escaped. I had some part in that, for I sat in a high place, and I strove with the dark tower, and the shadow passed. Then I was weary, very weary, and I walked long in dark thought. Then you know about Frodo, said Gimli. How do things go with him? I cannot say. 
He was saved from a great peril, but many lie before him still. He resolved to go alone to Mordor, and he set out. That is all I can say. Not alone, said Legolas. We think that Sam went with him. Did he, said Gandalf, and there was a gleam in his eye and a smile on his face. Did he, indeed? It is news to me, yet it does not surprise me. Good, very good. You lighten my heart. You must tell me more. Now, sit by me and tell me the tale of your journey. So Gandalf knows some things that he has learned himself and knows some things that have been passed to him by Gwaihir the Windlord, the great eagle that took him down from Orthanc following his captivity. I like the callback here. I like how <laughs> how uh, incidental it is almost. We, of course, were deeply connected to Frodo during his struggle on the seat of Amun-Han as he had worn the ring and looked to the north and seen the war and looked to, first to the north and then in every direction and seen the coming of war to the lands surrounding him. And then we remember the eye of Barad-dûr finding him, right? Pinning him, searching for him, coming up across uh, uh, across Amon uh, Sur and across, uh, not Amon Sur, excuse me, uh, across the other rock, which name is escaping me. That's terrible. What is happening to me? Across Tolbrandir in the middle of the river and then climbing up Amon-Hen, moving toward, uh, moving toward Frodo. And we speculated at the time, what is this other voice? The voice that calls out against Frodo. Take the ring off, you fool! And of course, when I was reading it, I couldn't help but do that in my Gandalf inflection. So of course, we all knew that it was Gandalf, but it turns out it was actually Gandalf. He was sat in a high place and he strove with the dark tower and the shadow passed. He strove with the dark tower. We talked about this at the time that in the end, Frodo takes off the ring himself. He is not compelled by the voice. He is not compelled by the eye. He is caught between the two of them, and there is a struggle, but ultimately he removes the ring of his own accord. And Gandalf here is noting that he was not fighting with Frodo. He was not commanding Frodo. He was not dominating Frodo, because to do so would be evil, at least morally questionable, morally dubious, right? But he's not fighting with Frodo. He's not trying to compel the ring bearer. He's fighting with the eye. He's fighting with the dark tower and freeing Frodo so that Frodo can make the choice himself, which of course he did. Gandalf, his response to learning that Sam has accompanied Frodo it warms my heart. I love it very much. Not alone, said Legolas. We think that Sam went with him. Did he, said Gandalf, and there was a gleam in his eye and a smile on his face. Did he indeed? Sam Gamgee delighting people both in and out of this text. It's uh, it's pretty great. As Ritalin says, yet still, Amon Law, thank you, R. Palmer. Good Lord. I do apologize. Sometimes, you know, for all of the, the incidental material that my brain retains on a daily basis, sometimes things slip through. I either need another cup of coffee or one fewer cups of coffee in order to make this whole thing work. Uh, Ray Lillen says, yet still no Frodo in this book. Yes, the bold division of the two towers into books three and four is difficult, I think, for many readers. I think that um, a lot of people are much more engaged in the primary plot with Frodo and Sam than they are in the secondary plot with Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, or even in this tertiary plot with Merry and Pippin and Treebeard, right? It's it's harder to be directly connected to these characters, particularly your first time through the book, particularly if you read this book as a younger person. Certainly the first time that I read through this, I was skimming pages. I was I was flipping pages outright. Oh, the Entmoot? Great. Cool. I don't care about this. Where is Frodo? Where is Sam? And what is going on with the ring? You know, the ring that's on the cover of this book? I kind of want to know what happens to that. But the more that I sink into this book, the more that I appreciate this book, the more that I, I read carefully this book, 
the more I appreciate what Tolkien does with these secondary stories, the turning point at the end of Fellowship as we explode outward into the two towers is striking. It's, it's a beautiful piece of modulation, of narrative modulation. We have this primary driving compulsive force that pushes us, propels us actively through the first volume in this novel, and then we get here, and the, the broken fragmentary scraps of motivation that propel Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, and to a lesser extent, because you know they have more immediate motivations, Merry and Pippin forward, the fact that, that we've had this kind of, this breaking of the fellowship, right? This fracturing of, of impulse and, and goal and motivation here actually speaks very powerfully to me, very, very powerfully thematically to me. What do we do when we are no longer under an immediate onus to take action? Well, that reveals a lot about who we are. Aragorn setting off after Merry and Pippin is one of the most heroic things that Aragorn does, actually. I, I, I would argue that. I think that it is one of the most kingly things that he does, certainly. Yeah. Um, let me see as I catch up. We're talking a lot about the comparison between... Uh, we're talking a lot about the comparison between Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones here. Some fine day, you guys, we'll do a Game of Thrones series. Some fine day, it will happen. Maybe after there and back again, we can do, as I've said before, I think uh, Essos and Westeros, I, 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 the Seven Kingdoms, I don't know. We can do something there. I Actually, I should say, I don't talk about this very much because obviously every time I do, it's an invitation to do a podcast about it. But I do really like Game of Thrones. I'm less enthusiastic about the HBO adaptation, honestly, because I just find so much of it to be trite and expected so much of it just feels somewhat less than committed to the primary narrative cause that is supposed to unify all of the influences and and, and all of the elements of this show but George R. R. Martin's books are actually really great I think there's a lot to like there and the extra detail and the, the much more rigorous control of the pacing I think works I do not think that okay this is rampant speculation and i hate myself for even going in this direction i do not think that the professor i do not think that professor tolkien would have enjoyed game of thrones but i do think that he would have approved of game of thrones in part at least as an act of secondary creation not perhaps as a story he certainly would not have agreed with the underlying philosophies of game of thrones they're pretty much antithetical to what the professor espoused in his creative works throughout his entire career but i do think he would have respected it as a secondary creation i do think that george r r martin has created a a remarkably rich world and that's that's you know impressive and celebratory yes c-star notes that the division between books three and four is difficult because quote i just wanted to read about Gollum. yeah also also very fair this is interesting both jackie and old toby are saying that they uh that they appreciate the Aragorn storyline. Uh, Jackie says, I love that it's divided, totally prefer the Aragorn storyline. And old Toby says, I was the opposite. I love book three and tend to push quickly through most of book four. That's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, and Rayla Lynn notes, I, I think it's because we spent so much time with Frodo in the Fellowship that it makes his absence very loud, which is a beautiful way of putting that, Rayla Lynn. Yes, I think you're entirely right. Good, good. Okay, let's... Um Yes, Tolkien would have been shell-shocked with Game of Thrones and respect it, says Angela Lurie. Yes, I think that may well be the case. I think that may well be the case. Good. All right. Let's keep pushing on here. Uh, Gandalf still speaks in riddles, we're told. In one thing you have not changed, dear friend, said Aragorn. You still speak in riddles. What? In riddles? said Gandalf. No, for I was talking aloud to myself. A habit of the old. They choose the wisest person present to speak to. The long explanations needed by the young are wearying. He laughed, but the sound now seemed warm and kindly as a gleam of sunshine. I am no longer young, even in the reckoning of men of the ancient houses, said Aragorn. Will you not open your mind more clearly to me? What then shall I say, said Gandalf, and paused for a while and thought. 
This, in brief, is how I see things at the moment. If you wish to have a piece of my mind as plain as possible, the enemy, of course, has long known that the ring is abroad and that it is borne by a hobbit. He knows how the number of our company that set out from he knows now the number of our company that set out from Rivendell and the kind of each of us, but he does not yet perceive our purpose clearly. He supposes that we are all going to Minas Tirith, for that is what he would himself have done in our place, and according to his wisdom it would have been a heavy stroke against his power. Indeed, he is in great fear, not knowing what mighty one may suddenly appear, wielding the ring and assailing him with war, seeking to cast him down and take his place. That we should wish to cast him down and have no one in his place is not a thought that occurs to his mind. That we should try to destroy the ring itself has not yet entered into his darkest dream, in which no doubt you will see our good fortune and our hope. For imagining war, he has let loose war, believing that he has no time to waste. For he that strikes the first blow, if he strikes it hard enough, may need to strike no more. So the forces that he has long been preparing, he is now setting in motion, sooner than he intended. The wise fool. For if he had used all his power to guard Mordor so that none could enter, and bent all his guile to the hunting of the ring, then indeed hope would have faded. Neither ring nor bearer could long have eluded him. But now his eye gazes abroad rather than near at home, and mostly he looks toward Minas Tirith. Very soon now his strength will fall upon it like a storm. For already he knows that the messengers that he has sent to waylay the company have failed again. They have not found the ring, neither have they brought any of the hobbits as hostages. Had they done even so much as that, it would have been a heavy blow to us, and it might have been fatal. But let us not darken our hearts by imagining the trial of their gentle loyalty in the Dark Tower. For the enemy has failed so far. Thanks to Saruman. Thanks to Saruman. We'll circle back around to that in a moment. This is absolutely critical. This is absolutely essential. Understanding what it is that Gandalf is saying and understanding the truth of it is vital in order to respond to some of the lazier critiques of the Lord of the Rings. Well, Sauron's amazing and his army is huge. How come Frodo and Sam can just slip into... How come they can just simply walk to Mordor? This is not... This is not a fair opposition to the Lord of the Rings. This is not a fair criticism of the movement of the professor's plot, because as Gandalf lays out here, he cannot conceive of the plan to destroy the ring. Of all the things that the forces of light might do with the ring, he cannot conceive of its destruction. He cannot conceive of of them uniting, of, of men and elves and dwarves and wizards uniting to overthrow the Dark Tower and not putting anyone else in his place. He is used to striving as evil things strive for dominance. The rejection of that notion, the rejection of that twisted and warped morality is antithetical to Sauron's thought. He literally cannot conceive it. This is why Mount Doom is not guarded. This is why the borders of Mordor are not more carefully protected. Because who is going to strike at Mordor? Who is going to come at him? The greatest opposition to his strength is not a hobbit or anyone, anyone. It's not Gandalf riding across the borders of Mordor and headed for Mount Doom. That's not going to stop him. He can't imagine that circumstance. No, he knows exactly what's going to happen. The good guys have the ring. Well, they're going to give it to the strongest dude that they can find. Hey, I hear some things about this Boromir of Gondor. They're going to give him the ring. He's going to go to Minas Tirith, rally the entire massed forces of the free world behind him, and go to war. Because that is what Sauron would do. And evil is necessarily limited. 
He cannot conceive of this selfless act. He cannot conceive of any of the selfless acts that have led us thus far. He simply can't imagine destroying the ring. And of course, in that way, we get an echo of Boromir, right? It's no coincidence that I just referenced Boromir of Gondor, because of course this was Boromir's plan. And so we see that the impulse to use the ring, to use the ring in the opposition of Sauron is is like unto Sauron's own thought. It is not just an evil impulse, but it is an evil impulse that Sauron has conceived and is now executing or is now you know, preparing against, which means that it is true of the ring's impulse too. The fact that Boromir wants to do, or when he is confronting Frodo at least, Boromir wants to do exactly what Sauron expects him to do, exactly what the fragment of Sauron's power contained within the ring expects him to do, because there is a fragment of Sauron's power contained within the ring, this whole thing fits together beautifully. The quest here is not really against the massed force of Sauron's army, right? If you think of this in classic strategic terms, if you think that there are two armies laid out, you know, for example, if you believe that this is an allegory for either the First or the Second World War, and you picture these two massed armies laying against each other as the, you know, allied and opposition forces did during the First or Second World Wars, then you might think, that Frodo's quest, even the, the, the you know, one-line notional conception of Frodo's quest is absurd. Of course you can't cross enemy lines into Mordor. But the enemy lines aren't marshaled at Mordor. They could be. Sauron could be airtight. You know, he could preserve the, the security of Mordor with the forces at his disposal. But because he can't imagine this action being taken, he doesn't. He extends himself outward and is thus less secure than he might otherwise be. Um, yes, Sauron would not think that we would destroy the ring itself, says Angela. Oh, and Isaac is joining us. Isaac says, finally caught up with the podcast. So I'm here live for the first time with you lovely folks. Great to have you with us, Isaac. Glad that you could join us tonight. Um, good, good. Yes, and of course, we're talking a little about the adaptations here, uh, the, the Peter Jackson adaptations and how clearly we... We play some of this stuff, not all great, not all great. Yes, as Lynn says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. No, the deal is that if, if, if all of Sauron's forces are marshaled, Boromir is 100% wrong. You can actually simply walk into Mordor. If Sauron is protecting it, then you can't, but he's not. As R. Palmer says, and that's how Aragorn managed to fool Sauron into attacking the armies of Gondor and Rohan at the Moranon. He used the Palantir to trick Sauron into thinking that he had the ring. Well, Spoilers. Foreshadowing. It's fine. Uh, but yes, yes. I mean, this is the idea. Using Sauron's uh, tyrannical, brutalistic evil against him, this is the hope of the light. This is the hope of... of I keep using this phrase, right? The hope of the light. I'm embodying the fellowship here with, with the force of, of illumination. And it's no coincidence that I'm thinking in those terms because, of course, here we have Gandalf. In this passage that I have on the screen right now, he laughed, but the sound now seemed warm and kindly as a gleam of sunshine. Remember, we just had gleams of sunshine associated with Gandalf, but it was the fire. It was the sun. It was Gandalf the white. And here we see in laughter that power still embodied. It's still there. It can also just be benevolent. It can be warming as the power of the sun can so often be. So the forces that he has long been preparing for, he is now setting in, long now been preparing, he is now setting in motion sooner than he intended. Wise fool. For if he had used all the power to guard Mordor so that none could enter and belt, bent all his guile to the hunting of the ring, then indeed hope would have faded. Neither ring nor bearer could long have eluded him. Look how 
categoric, you know, Gandalf is here. Look how emphatic he is. Yeah. If he decided to guard Mordor and look for the ring, if instead of attacking, he had been on the defense here, then all hope would have faded. He would have found the ring. He would have recovered the ring by now. There's nothing that we could have done to prevent that. There's no force on earth that could have opposed him then. It is only the nature of evil, this innately self-destructive nature of evil that drives Sauron onward, that drives Sauron forward. Good. Good. Okay, um, let's move on to our next slide here. Oh, we're going to pivot away from this to clear up a little incidental detail. Wait a minute, cried Gimli. There is another thing I would like to know first. Was it you, Gandalf, or Saruman that we saw last night? You certainly did not see me, answered Gandalf. Therefore, I must guess that you saw Saruman. Evidently, we look so much alike that in your desire to make an incurable, that your, in, your desire to make an incurable dent in my hat must be excused. Good, good, said Gimli. I am glad it was not you. Gandalf laughed again. Yes, my good dwarf, he said. It is a comfort not to be mistaken at all points. Do I not know it only too well? But of course, I never blamed you for your welcome of me. How could I do so, We who have so often counseled my friends to suspect even their own hands when dealing with the enemy? Bless you, Gimli, son of Glowin. Maybe you will see us both together one day and judge between us. But the hobbits, Legolas broke in, we have come far to seek them, and you seem to know where they are. Where are they now? With Treebeard and the ants, said Gandalf. The ants, exclaimed Aragorn. Then there is truth in the old legends about the dwellers in the deep forests and the giant shepherds of the trees. Are there still ants in the world? I thought they were only a memory of ancient days, if indeed there were more, ever more of a legend of Rohan. A legend of Rohan, cried Legolas. Nay, every elf in Wilderland has sung songs of the old Onodrim and their long sorrow. Yet even among us they are only a memory. If I were to meet one still walking in this world, then indeed I should feel young again. But Treebeard, that is only a rendering of Fangorn into the common speech. Yet you seem to speak of a person. Who is this Treebeard? I refer Legolas to last week's discussion here on There and Back Again, and indeed the previous week's discussion here on There and Back Again. It was not Gandalf who visited the company, this this fragment of our fellowship, the night before he actually appeared. Um, it was indeed Saruman. He is going out into the world. He is visible near the fringes of Fangorn Forest, and Gandalf can take no credit for that. Just kind of wrapping up the details of our story here. Um, Gandalf knows everything that's going on, as usual, says Angela. Yes, fair. Fair. Um, and Lynn asks, is it a vision of Saruman or actually him? I'm going to say a vision of Saruman for a couple of reasons. The first being that geographically, I'm not sure that it works to have Saruman this distant from, from Orthanc, right? Also kind of, I suppose, conceptually, in terms of his characterization, I don't think it makes much sense for Saruman to be wandering around here in the wild. Certainly, I can't imagine him leaving behind Orthanc to go out and meet in person the returning Orochai who are coming back to him. That doesn't seem to fit my understanding of Saruman's character. But also, remember, we get that uh, CSI Fangorn scene, as I was referring to it last time, where we're investigating the, the scene around the campsite. And Gintley's saying that he hopes that they can find footprints. They hope that they, he can find tracks. And Legolas says, well, why? And Gintley says, well, because that means he's really here. If we can't find tracks, if Aragorn can't find a bent blade of grass, then that means that he wasn't really here. It was some kind of illusion, some phantasm, some spirit here. And of course, we're reminded of Saruman's connection with illusions and phantasms and deceptive magics of all sort of, uh, of, uh, of craft there, yes. Um, 
<laughs> Jackie says, so glad Legolas is here to remind us what's what. Yeah, Legolas just keeping the story running here. And and also, yeah, pointing out a legend of Rohan. Nay, every elf in Wilderland has sung songs of Old Odrim and their long Zorro. Yet even among us, they are only a memory. So, not a legend of Rohan. No, don't be ridiculous. A legend of Rohan? Don't be absurd. They're a legend of elves too, dude. Or a memory. I suppose those two things are roughly equivalent when you're an elf. Let's get to the meat of the matter, shall we? Because something has happened to Gandalf. The last we saw him, he was falling from the bridge of Khazad-dûm. He was ensnared by the, the whip-like flail of the Balrog, falling into unfathomable depths. But here he is, back and better than ever. How did this come to be? I have stayed already too long, answered Gandalf. Time is short, but if there were a year to spend, I would not tell you all. But tell us what you will, and time allows, said Gimli. Come, Gandalf, tell us how you fared with the Balrog. Name him not, said Gandalf, and for a moment it seemed that a cloud of pain passed over his face, and he sat silent, looking old as death. Long time I fell, he said at last, slowly, as if thinking back with difficulty. Long I fell, and he fell with me. His fire was about me, I was burned. Then we plunged into the deep water, and all was dark. Cold it was as the tide of death. Almost it froze my heart. Deep is the abyss that is spanned by Durin's bridge, and none has measured it, said Gimli. Yet it has a bottom, beyond light and knowledge, said Gandalf. Thither I came at last to the uttermost foundations of stone. He was with me still. His fire was quenched, but now he was a thing of slime, stronger than a strangling snake. We fought far under the living earth where time is not counted. Ever he clutched me, and ever I hewed him, till at last he fled into dark tunnels. They were not made by Durin's folk, Gimli, son of Glowin. Far, far below the deepest delvings of the dwarves, the world is gnawed by nameless things. Even Sauron knows them not. They are older than he. Now... I have walked there, but I will bring no report to darken the light of day. In that despair my enemy was my only hope, and I pursued him, clutching at his heel. Thus he brought me back at last to the secret ways of Khazadum. Too well he knew them all. Ever up now we went, until we came to the endless stair. Long has that been lost, said Gimli. Many have said that it was never made save in legend, but others say that it was destroyed. It was made, and it has not been destroyed, said Gandalf. From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak it climbed, ascending an unbroken spiral in many thousand steps, until it issued at last in Durin's tower, carved in the living rock of Zerakzigil, the pinnacle of the Silvertine. So, Gandalf and the Balrog plunge deep into the bowels of the earth. They fall from the bridge and fall for the longest time. And there is something so heartbreaking in the... The grammatical inconsistency, the, the, the grammatical inaccuracy here, as he's thinking, name him not, said Gandalf, and for a moment it seemed as though a, a, uh, excuse me, a cloud of pain passed over his face, and he sat silent, looking old as death. Long time I fell, he said at last, slowly, as if thinking back with difficulty. Long time I fell. This is bare speech from Gandalf. It's more bare, I would argue, than much of the speech that we get from Gandalf in the course of this entire book. It is elemental. It is unadorned. He is clearly lost in the memory of it, lost in the pain of it. Long time I fell. 
He plunged deep from Durin's bridge here into the fathomless depths, into the water, right? He crashed into the, plunged into the deep water and all was dark, cold it was as the tide of death, almost it froze my heart. And there beneath the water, his fire was quenched, but now he was a thing of slime stronger than a strangling snake. So they're still, still wrestling, still sinking deeper and deeper into the freezing water, deep, uh, who knows how deep, beneath Durin's bridge, beneath the bridge of Khazadum. We fought far under the living earth where time is not counted. It is possible here that we are even approaching the idea that Gandalf did pass from the world, but I'm not sure that I necessarily hold to that idea. I think that he is still beneath the earth, that this is metaphorical rather than literal, right? Although literal in the sense that this deep beneath the earth, the passing of time is completely irrelevant. But this deep, or certainly there's no way to, to count the passing of time, right? No stars or moon or sun to chart the passage of time in the heavens. But it's also, you know, possible that he's entering a realm that is all but beyond the very bounds of Arda, right? Even ever he clutched me and ever I hewed him till at last he fled into dark tunnels. So we've we've vanished beneath the surface of the water. We're now, we're now so deep beneath the bowels of the earth that all is darkness and timelessness. Ever he clutched me, he's dragging Gandalf down and ever I hewed him, Gandalf's smiting him as, as hard as he can till at last he fled into dark tunnels. They were not made by Durin's folk, Gimli, son of Glowin. Far, far below the deepest delvings of the dwarves, the world is gnawed by nameless things. If I had to pick a single line from the two towers that I love more than any other, it might be that Far, far below the deepest delvings of the dwarves, the world is gnawed by nameless things. The alliterative uh, repetition here, far, far, obviously that's pretty trivial, but the deepest delvings of the dwarves, the world is gnawed by nameless things. Even Sauron knows them not. They are older than he. What is there beneath the earth? Well... Yeah, your speculation is <laughs> maybe that's where Peter Jackson's wereworms live, says R. Palmer. I hadn't thought of that. That's exactly what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the Shai Halud. He's talking about the giant dune-style wereworms that emerge from the the, the deserts uh, in the the Battle of the Five Armies. Yeah, no, that that might be it in the uh, in the uh, in the adaptation there. Yes, good, good. Um, if the stair was made, asks Shane, is this part of where the dwarves delved too deep? Well, okay, let's track exactly what is happening here, right? So they, they fall from the bridge through the air. They crash into the water and continue to fall. They sink deeper and deeper and deeper. They're still fighting this whole time. Gandalf has no idea how long this takes. Then the Balrog flees and Gandalf gives chase. He's chasing after it through the, the darkness, through the water, into the tunnels, the tunnels that were not made by Durin's folk, right? But the tunnels do exist and the tunnels reconnect to Khazadun. They reconnect to the mine of Moria. So, yes, presumably, right, when the dwarves delve too deep, this is presumably what they tap into. This is where the evil awoke from. This is where Durin's Bane was hiding. This is where he has been, the, the, where the Balrog has been now for, for countless years. He's buried away in these caverns beneath the earth. 
And then we find bat once we're up back in the dungeons, we find the the endless stair uh, back to the secret ways of Kazadum. So we're back in Kazadum. Too well he knew them all. Ever up now we went until we came to the endless stair. So we come racing up through the deepest uh, pits of Kazadum, up through the deepest delvings of the dwarves, back up to the lowest level of the dungeon, which is presumably above the the deeper mines, and that's where the endless stair begins. That we ascend all the way to Durin. Tower carved in the living rock of Zirak Zigil, the pinnacle of the Silver Tine. So we chase now all the way back up. Having fallen as far as we could possibly fall, we now climb as far as we can possibly climb. I don't know what the nameless things are beneath the world. Certainly, there isn't an answer, a satisfactory or complete answer in Tolkien's Legendarium, but I do know that it puts me in mind of of Lovecraft, right? It puts me in mind of, of nameless eldritch things which underpin the world. Is there a counterforce to, to Eru Iluvatar? Is there a counterforce to, to creation and goodness embodied in the world somehow? Well, maybe, maybe. Or perhaps this is just Gandalf reflecting the fact that actually, no, there are just nameless things down there, right? There are, there are literally things down there that have never been named because we need men and elves and 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 conscious thinking creatures to go forth into the world to explore and to name things that is one of the things that the elves did is to go out and name things and these things have never been named because they've never been seen because they've never been encountered but they are presumably a part of the song so that's that's why they are created that's why they are there yeah good good um all right excellent Tell me about the world Norse, dang it, says Seastar. Yes, if you want more world Norse, definitely go and read, uh, definitely go and read H.P. Lovecraft. So, beyond light and knowledge, Gandalf fell and then climbed once more back up to the peak of Zirak Zigil, the pinnacle of the Silver Tine. There upon Kalebdil, oh, excuse me, let me do my Gandalf voice. There upon Kalebdil was a lonely window in the snow, and before it lay a narrow space, a dizzy eyrie above the mists of the world. The sun shone fiercely there. But all below was wrapped in cloud. Out he sprang, and even as I came behind, he burst into new flame. There was none to see, or perhaps in ages after, songs would still be sung of the Battle of the Peak. Suddenly, Gandalf laughed. But what would they say in song? Those that looked up from afar thought the mountain was crowned with storm. Thunder they heard, and lightning they said smoke upon, smote upon Calabdil, and leapt back broken into tongues of fire. Is not that enough? A great smoke rose about us, vapor and steam, ice fell like rain. I threw down my enemy, and he fell from the high place and broke the mountainside where he smote it in his ruin. Then darkness took me, and I strayed out of thought and time, and I wandered far on roads that I will not tell. Naked I was sent back, for a brief time until my task is done, and naked I lay upon the mountain top. The tower behind was crumbled into dust, the window gone. The ruined stair was choked with burned and broken stone. I was alone, forgotten, without escape upon the hard horn of the world. There I lay, staring upward while the wheel stars wheeled over, and each day was as long as a life age of the earth. Faint to my ears came the gathered rumor of all lands, the springing and the dying, the song and the weeping, and the slow, everlasting groan of overburdened stone. And so at the last, Gwaihir the Windlord found me again, and he took me up and bore me away. Ever am I fated to be your burden, friend at need, I said. A burden you have been, he answered, but not so now. Night is a swan's feather in my claw you are. The sun shines through you. 
Indeed, I did not think you need me any more. Were I to let you fall, you would float upon the wind. Do not let me fall, I gasped, for I felt life in me again. Bear me to Lothlorien. That indeed is the command of the Lady Galadriel, who sent me to look for you, he answered. No you catastrophe this time from the eagles. No, the eagles are coming. Chance, if chance, you call it intrusion of fate and grace into the life of Gandalf. Rather, something more mundane. Galadriel sends forth Gwaihir to search for Gandalf. Exactly what happens to Gandalf is one of those topics which enchants and infuriates readers of the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien scholars by equal measure. Some people love this explanation. Some people hate this explanation. Some people hate the, the cheat of it all. Gandalf dies. You kill Gandalf in, in Casa Doom and it's fantastic. And then you bring him back because what? You were just out of ideas. Death means nothing in this world. This is completely removing any of the, uh, any of the stakes of our conflict here. And I myself am absolutely not of that opinion. For me, the death and return of Gandalf is completely enmeshed in Tolkien's cosmology, in his sense of how the world works, in the sense of those forces which govern the world. Let's see if we can parse this just a little first and, and see what sense we can make of this. I, I will read this first, though. Seastar uh, says, I really enjoyed what the film did with Gandalf's ordeal. It showed what he described in an abbreviated yet beautiful pair of sequences which couldn't have done it justice, especially since so much of the drama is within his mind and not the physical world, but in my opinion, is preferable to the sort of long, drawn-out battle sequences the films are prone to. Yes, I completely agree. Oh, Heroes and Bards. Um... Uh, Angela says, naked I was sent back, quoting naked I was sent back. And he, Rosenbard, says, naked in more ways than just without clothes, I think, Angela. Yes, I am inclined to agree. Yes, a resurrection moment, says Jackie. Yes, this is exactly what is happening. And we can tell, I think, that this is exactly what's happening. I mean, we can pay close attention to the conflict first. I, I love this beat. Out he sprang, and even as I came behind, he burst into new flame. So what is the source of the Balrog's fire? What is the source of the Balrog's flame? He has been dark. He has been extinguished by the freezing waters deep below the earth in Casa Doom, and he has emerged from the water back into the deepest delvings of the dwarves, back into the mines of the dwarves, and then into the dungeons of the dwarves, and up the endless stair to the very peak, to Durin's Tower itself, here in the peaks of the Misty Mountains, and he emerges out into the sunlight and bursts anew into flame. I think it's easy to overstate this, and I certainly don't want to spend a lot of time on this since I'm already well over the hour that I promised for tonight's session. But it does seem to me that there is something here that is deeply anchored in, deeply connected to, absolutely inextricable from our notion of initial creation, right? We've talked about this before. We talked about this just last time in our discussion of Gandalf and Saruman and the difference between Gandalf and Saruman, right? There is this white light. There is this this holy creative force, this creative energy that springs forth from Iluvatar, that springs in the real world in Tolkien's theology from God. This is the white light which is refracted through human beings in acts of creation, right? The white fire here, this white fire, this, this sun fire that we have associated with Gandalf ever since his return, throughout this chapter, we've done this again and again and again. We've connected Gandalf back to the fire, back to the sun, back to that white, pure, radiant light. Here, the Balrog, this foul creature, this creation of, of Melkor, bursts forth from his, his subterranean dwelling here for the first time in 
countless years. The first time since, since God, uh, millions, and, uh, not millions, that's a, that's a rank exaggeration, thousands of years. He bursts forth for the first time. He is in the open air. And what happens? His fire is rekindled. Now, why should it be that the light, that the sun on him should rekindle his fire? Well, because that dark impulse that was twisted into the creation of the Balrog is still a reflection of the creative light of Iluvatar. It is still the same fire. The fire itself is turned to dark purpose by evil. That is what evil does. But the Balrog is reignited by exposure, by direct immediate line of sight exposure to the sun, because that is still the source of all fire. There is nothing inherently evil about it. The only thing that is evil is the use to which it is put, the, the corruption that is turned against it. That is what renders anything evil. So I could spend more time on that, but that for me is why the Balrog bursts again into flame. And we get this great beat from Gandalf, this moment of levity. There, were, there was none to see, or perhaps in ages after, songs would still be sung of the Battle of the Peak. What would they say in song? Those that looked up from afar thought the mountain was crowned with storm. Thunder they heard, and lightning they said, smote upon Calabdil, and leapt back broken into tongues of fire. Is not that enough? Is not that enough? Is that not actually the best story? Is that not? What would people who saw it say if not that? That's actually a perfectly fine depiction. What is Gandalf saying when he says that this is a perfectly accurate or at least a metaphorical description? Well, he's certainly connecting back to that old mythic idea that, you know, one of the purposes of myths is to explain the natural world. That's one of the things that we use myths for. Why is there lightning and thunder on the peak of Calabdil? Oh, because a wizard and a demon are fighting up there. That's what's happening, right? That's an absolutely... Uh, conventional uh, explanatory myth for thunder and lightning, right? That, that makes a lot of sense. It actually fits rather beautifully, and Gandalf seems to understand that. Is not that enough? And then a great smoke rose about us, vapor and steam ice fell like rain. We're seeing here the dissolution of, of the natural world, vapor and steam in the fire and the ice coming down and everything is in conflict. This, this is absolutely an elemental conflict. Fire and water and heat and the absence of heat, heat and cold almost as an embodied force here the, at war, the one with the other here on the peak of Calabdal. And then uh, I threw down my enemy. And he fell from the high place and broke the mountainside where he smote it in his ruin. Then darkness took me. A final act of defiance, a final act of strength. And Gandalf casts down the Balrog. He throws down the Balrog from the very peak. And it, it shatters into ruin on the side of the mountain here. Uh, mirroring, of course, echoing uh, what happened to Gandalf on the bridge of Khazad-dûm in the first place, right? This is this is a beautiful symmetry that is happening here. And there's symmetry throughout this, you know, the, the fire of Gandalf and the fire of the Balrog, right? We talked about that during the conflict on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, right? The, the white fire and the, the flame of Udun. We've got the, 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 white the white fire, if you like, and the black fire opposed here. We've got the falling into the depths. We've got the water. We've got the ascension again. So we go down and then we go up and then we go down again. We've got ice and fire and darkness and light and all of this elemental opposition. This is what I was referring to earlier when I said that this is one of the most mythic things that Tolkien ever wrote, in fact. This is, and that includes like actual myths. This to me is damn near as mythic as the Ainulindale itself, right? Where he's consciously engaged in, in a mythopoeic exercise. This too, extraordinarily mythic, which makes it all the more appropriate that Gandalf draws that connection to this kind of explanatory myth. What would observers say? Well, they'd credit us with thunder and lightning as well they should.
because that's true in a sense. That's the thing about myths is that they can be truer than true. Then what happens? Darkness took me. Darkness claims it like, like an active force. Darkness takes him here in this place of light, here in this, this dizzying brilliance, you know, a narrow space, a dizzy eye above the midst of the world. The sun shone fiercely there, but all below was wrapped in cloud. So we've got this, this brilliant, you know, we're above the clouds. There, there's nothing impeding the sun. It is brilliant and it is bright, but darkness takes him. More of that opposition. Darkness took me and I strayed out of thought and time and I wandered far on roads that I will not tell. Naked, I was sent back for a brief time until my task is done. And naked I lay upon the mountaintop. Naked I lay upon the mountaintop. This seems to be physical proof that Gandalf has gone, that he vanished from the mountaintop and was returned to the mountaintop. That the roads which he traveled are not completely metaphorical. In fact, there is a road which it seems quite likely he traveled, the straight road. The pathway, this 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 fairy pathway toward the Undying Lands, right? He is going, in a sense, into the West. This is, this, to my reading, kind of fits. Or simply passing beyond, it, it's that it's not the straight road to the West, but it is a different road, that, that he is passing beyond the world itself. Now, exactly what happens to Gandalf's spirit upon his death is an area for, for speculation there, I think. But certainly, he goes and returns. Is this the direct intervention of God? Is this the direct intervention of Iluvatar within Tolkien's conception? I mean, yes, yes. It seems as though it must be, right? Darkness took me. I strayed out of thought and time. Now, if we assume that Gandalf here is not speaking metaphorically, but is struggling to speak literally, that he is, is struggling to actually express something that genuinely happened to him, the realms of thought and time are bounded by the limits of creation, right? All of, crea all of thought is all of creation, that these two things are almost synonymous, the one with the other, that all of time, even here in Arda, that, that time and creation are somehow synonymous. If he passes beyond these realms, then where... Is he? What has happened to him? And what does it mean to be sent back, right? He is not, I returned, not, I found my way back. He is not crediting the agency here, right? He is not, is, or he is not claiming the agency here. He is not saying, but I persevered and overcame and came back because, you know, Lembus is pretty great and pipeweed and, you know, second breakfast on the lawn. Uh, that's not what he's saying. I was sent back back and that implies an external agency that that had you know a kind of motivation here to send him back naked i was sent back for a brief time until my task is done and naked i lay upon the mountaintop the tower behind was crumbled into dust the window gone the ruined stair choked with burned and broken stone i was alone forgotten without escape upon the hard horn of the world i wasn't saved you guys i wasn't plucked from the mountaintop and cast into the gentle embrace of the Lady Galadriel, that's not what happened. I was sent back. I was not taken and rescued. This is not the this is not the intervention of a god who adjusts things to his advantage, right? What actually happens to Gandalf here, the leaving of the world and the return to the world, changes nothing. Right? This is not Iluvatar extending his hand into the world and saying, actually, uh, I'm a little worried about this. Frodo, obviously, I want the ring to be destroyed, so I'll just pluck it from Frodo's care and drop it into Mount Doom myself. He could do that. He is, you know, God and omnipotent. That is a thing that he could do, but he doesn't because there is an internal 
<sighs> integrity to the workings of Arda. Things have to play out as they were conceived in the song. That is what the song was for, the Aina Lindale. So Gandalf here dies and is returned, but nothing else changes. This to me is why it is not a cheat. How is he saved? Well, he's saved by Gwaihir with whom he is friends, but he's saved by Gwaihir at the Lady Galadriel's request. This is chance, if chance you call it. This is good fortune, if good fortune you call it. But it is also a consequence of the people of Middle-earth making choices and taking action, as all good things are the consequences of the people of Middle-earth you know, making choices and taking action. Good. Um, let me see here. Or like a Doctor Who regeneration, says uh, Angela. Yes, right? That's exactly what happens. He has a few more of these, and then he will come back as a woman, which will be really exciting. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Good. Shane says, I may teach kids that thunder and lightning come from wizard dead and slime monster fighting. Shane, I want that children's book. I really want that children's book. If you could come up with a number of explanations like that, that would be great. Why are there rainbows? Well, that's when wizard dad is reflecting the light of creation. Or, or even better, why are there rainbows? Oh, that's Saruman of many colors. We don't trust him. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's very good. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Jackie says, sent back to fulfill his destiny. He's the only wizard to stick to his original assignment. Iluvatar knows Arda needs Gandalf. The free peoples of Middle-earth need him to survive this war. Oh, and Gildarts asks, could Gandalf the White be heralding the Fourth Age? Well, I guess in a sense he is, right? Because in order for the Fourth Age to come about, Gandalf has to fulfill his task. But Jackie, I think you're, I think you're right there. Talk about purpose-driven, she concludes there. Yes, uh, Gandalf is, well, okay, we don't know about the Blue Wizards. We don't know what they're doing in the Far East. They may be also fighting against Sauron in their way. We, we can't necessarily say that they've completely abandoned their post in the way that Radagast did, or, or gone native in the way that Radagast did, or, you know, been corrupted by by and greed and the desire for power in the way that Saruman was. But yes, you're right. As of our, our current knowledge, Gandalf is the only one who remained on task. Very, very goal-oriented is the thing about Gandalf. Yeah, good, good. Okay, I absolutely must push on. Let's, let's do our last one. So Gandalf ends up here. We could obviously talk forever about Gandalf returning, but I hope I've gone some way to, to kind of explaining why it is that I don't see this as a cheat. I don't see it as authorial intrusion. I see it as being so completely and rigorously consistent with Tolkien's approach to his secondary creation that, that it absolutely works for me, right? Iluvatar, and this is perhaps a fine distinction, but yes, had Iluvatar or, or had some mysterious force plucked Gandalf from the, the peak of Calebdil there and dropped him neatly in Karas Galathon, well, yeah. I, I would have called shenanigans too. Like that would have been a bridge too far because that is breaking the rules of the world. But subverting that moment of death, casting him back into the world exactly where he was, apparently exactly in the state that he was in, except now alive instead of dead, still suffering, still near death and still imminently facing death. That doesn't seem to me to be, to be breaking the rules. That doesn't seem to me to be too unfair. Thus it was, I came to Karas Garathon and found you but lately gone. I tarried there in the ageless time of that land where days bring healing, not decay. Healing I found, and I was clothed in white. Counsel I gave and counsel took, thence by strange roads I came, and messages I bring to some of you. To Aragorn I was bidden to say this. 
Where now are the Dunedain, Elisar, Elisar? Why do thy kinsfolk wander afar? Near is the hour when the lost should come forth, and the grey company ride from the north, but dark is the path appointed for thee. The dead watch the road that leads to the sea. To Legolas she sent this word. Legolas, green leaf, long under tree, in joy thou hast lived, thou hast lived, beware of the sea, if thou hearest the cry of the gull on the shore, thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. Gandalf fell silent and shut his eyes. Then she sent me no message, said Gimli, and bent his head. Dark are her words, said Legolas, and little did they mean to those who received them. That is no comfort, said Gimli. What then, said Legolas, would you have her speak openly to you of your death? Yes, if she had not else to say. What is that, said Gandalf, opening his eyes. Yes, I think I can guess what her words may mean. Your pardon, Gimli. I was pondering the messages once again, but indeed she sent words to you, and neither dark nor sad. To Gimli, son of Glowin, she said, give his lady's greeting. Lock, bearer, wherever thou goest, my thought goes with thee, but have a care to lay thine axe to the right tree. In happy hour you've returned to us, Gandalf, cried the dwarf, capering as he sang loudly in the strange dwarf tongue. Come, come, he shouted, swinging his axe. Since, Gandalf held, since Gandalf's head is now sacred, let us find one that it is right to cleave. Gimli responding as dwarves are wont to respond, I guess. Um, let's see here. Good. Good. Um, good. Yes, uh, Jackie's saying this is the closest to Christ a Tolkien character gets, I think. Uh, yeah, I wasn't going to delve into the the Christ allegory here for Gandalf, mostly because I don't think it's a particularly uh, applicable allegory. I don't think that it's a... Uh, I don't think that, beyond the kind of death and resurrection imagery, I don't think that it's particularly compelling, honestly. I've read some accounts, some some uh, pieces of analysis here, uh, some critiques of Gandalf's death and return that seek to map it to uh to christ imagery and 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 christ narrative i suppose but i'm never completely convinced honestly i just think that he's doing something very different and i doing something that i do not think is incompatible with a a um with a faith in or an honoring of the Christ story, right? I don't think that he would be against the idea of of using a Christ allegory at all in his stories, but I don't think that he's using one now. I think that if, again, this feels like one of those things where if he was going to, it would have been more than this, right? It would have been more specific and more pointed than this, not to to invite a kind of, of somewhat more bold and stark uh, C.S. Lewis style allegory here. So he goes to Karis Galathon, he rests in Karis Galathon, he, he uh, counsel I gave and counsel took, thence by strange roads I came and messages I bring to some of you. To Aragorn I was bidden to say this. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that he has given three messages that we know of to the three that he finds? Where now are the Dunedain, Elisar, Elisar? Why do their kinsfolk wander afar? Near is the hour when the lost should come forth and the grey company ride from the north. Okay, so the first four lines. Uh, Aragorn, really great that you came with the fellowship. Where are your people? You're going to need them. They are, they are designed for this. They are literally, they have been preparing for this since the fall of the kingdom in the north. You need them now. Near is the hour when the lost should come forth. The lost, the Dunedain, and the grey company ride from the north. But dark is the path appointed for thee. The dead watch the road that leads to the sea. More on that later. 
To Legolas she sends, Legolas Greenleaf, long under tree, in joy thou hast lived, beware of the sea. If thou hearest the cry of the gull on the shore, thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. Well, we know about the appeal of the sea to elves, right? We know about the appeal of, of leaving behind Middle-earth, that all elves are simply tarrying here, as Gildor says back in the Shire. We're just, you know... Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. We'll go. We're, we're we're definitely going, right? We're we're all definitely going, but we're just not yet. You know, we've got a couple things to do. I've got some errands to run, and then you know, it's going to be like eleven thirty, so we'll stop. We'll have lunch. We'll we'll hang out a little while, and then by that point, tomorrow. Okay, but tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow we'll probably all go into the west. It'll be fine, right? We're not in any hurry. But yes, we're definitely all going. Legolas, it seems is a little more closer to that decision than the others. Watch out, Legolas. If you hear the sea, it will be joyous. Like, you will want to go. It's not, um, it's not that, that, that you will be compelled or that under fear you will go. Thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. No. If you hear the sea, if you see the sea, your heart will reside with the sea. Your heart will reside in the West from that moment. That's it. That's all it's going to take. So, you know, watch out for that. Because if you're not done, then you probably shouldn't be ready to go yet and then we have uh well then we have legolas, uh, legolas and gimli's conversation then she sent me no words said gimli and bent his head gimli obviously upset by this dark are her words said legolas and little did they mean to those who receive them he's obviously not talking in general here the lady galadriel gives wise counsel dark are her words and little little do they mean to those who receive them also the message to aragorn pretty crystal crystal clear legolas even you should be able to decipher that little riddle no he's talking about the messages that come to him he's talking about this word enjoy thou hast left beware of the sea what this is clearly a message of death, right? Dark are her words and little do they mean to those who receive them. Okay, firstly, her messages are dark. Secondly, I don't know what she means. Thirdly, that is no comfort, said Gimli. What then, said Legolas? Would you have her speak openly to you of your death? He seems to believe that that is what Galadriel is, is talking about here, that Galadriel is passing to Legolas directly a message of death. Beware of the sea. If thou hearest the cry of the gull on the shore, thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. Thou heart, uh, thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. Brackets, because you will be dead? Well, no, I don't think that's the reading at all. I don't think that's, our understanding of elves doesn't suggest that at all. It's not stay away from the ocean, Legolas, or bad things are going to happen to you. It's stay away from the ocean, Legolas, or you're going to pass into the West. But Legolas doesn't yet have the experience, doesn't yet have the maturity, doesn't yet have the, the elvishness to completely understand that. So we'll also put a pin in that and come back to that later too. And then Gandalf is thinking through the messages. I think I can guess what her words may mean. Your pardon, Gimli. I was pondering the message, messages once again. But indeed she sent words to you and neither dark nor sad. Notice that we don't get a poem here. Notice that we don't get a song here for Gimli. This is just a message. To Gimli, son of Glowen, give his lady's greeting. That's pretty big. That's pretty huge. This is not, you know say hi from me. This is not give the warmest greetings of the Lady Galadriel, his lady. She is honoring here his fealty to her, his supplication to her, his love for her in a monarchistic, feudalistic sense, you know, the good and righteous love that a subject has for his monarch, you know, for, for, his, for his lady in this instance. To Gimli, son of Glowen, give his lady's greeting, Lockbearer, wherever thou goest, my thought goes with thee. Oh, Lockbearer, by the way, I've seen some weird 
bits of interpretation on the internet about this, trying to figure out what is the lock that Gimli holds? What is the key that Gimli holds? Does he have a key for this lock? Lock bearer here, meaning the, the hair that Galadriel gave him, right? This is, this is affectionate. This is uh, give his ladies greeting. Hey, person who's carrying my hair, wherever thou goest, my thought goes with thee. But have a care to lay thine axe to the right tree. This is playful bordering on the flirtatious Galadriel. This is really intimate. This is very, I mean, for a lady to condescend in this fashion, for Galadriel of all ladies to condescend in this fashion is startling. I completely understand Gimli's response here. In happy hour you've returned to us, Gandalf, cried the dwarf, capering as he sang loudly in the strange dwarf tongue. He immediately jumps to his feet and starts Tom Bombadilling around the place. In happy hour you have returned to us, Gandalf. So glad you're alive, dude, but did you hear the message? Did you see the text that Galadriel sent me? Pretty great, pretty great. She's my lady. Yes, she is. He's very, very happy. Come, come, he shouted, swinging his axe. Since Gandalf's head is now sacred, let us find one that is right to cleave. Since Gandalf's head is now sacred... Since the head of this old man, who appeared to us here in the forest, has now been revealed to be the head of Gandalf, and thus is off the list of things which I might cleave with, you know, responsible caution, one possible interpretation, right? Since this head, which I now know to be, which I, uh, uh -huh, this head, which I now know to be Gandalf's, must not be cleaved, must not be cloven by my axe. Let us go find a head that I can cleave, Right? But of course, we've just been talking about Gandalf's resurrection, his return to the frame of the world. Since Gandalf's head is now sacred, is Gimli making a joke? Is Gimli perceiving something greater here? Is he recognizing an elevation in Gandalf's state, in Gandalf's condition here? He's either making a joke about the anonymous old man being, re being revealed to be Gandalf, or he's making a joke about Gandalf's sudden elevation right? That, that he is in somehow recognizing Gandalf's newfound sanctity here. Um, let me see. Oh, Jackie is giving us some, uh, Jackie is giving us some thoughts here on, um, on the blue wizards, on the blue wizards, quote, I really do not know anything clearly about the other two wizards since they do not concern the history of the Northwest. I think they went as emissaries to distant regions, east and south, far out of Numenorean range, missionaries to enemy-occupied lands, as it were. What successes they had, I do not know, but I fear they failed as Saruman did, though doubtless in different ways, and I suspect they were founders or beginnings of secret cults and magic traditions that outlasted the fall of Sauron. Beautiful. Thank you. That is from, um, gosh, I'm afraid I do not remember to whom that letter was written, but that is definitely one of the professor's letters. Excellent. Excellent. Good. Um, oh, Father John is asking, I wonder if Gimli later takes Lockbearer as a family name. Firstly, yes, that would be wonderful. Secondly, uh, what a great family name. What a great surname that would be. I like that. Yes. Good. Good. That, I think, is going to do it. Oh, Jackie, please don't apologize for the tangent. Jackie, I'm relying on you for this stuff. This is, this is wonderful. Thank you so, so much for that. Yes. Good. <laughs> uh, R. Palmer says, the way Alistair reads Galadriel makes me imagine a sassy master of Twitter. Helpful advice and biting sarcasm. I'd love to read some of her tweets. There must be a, uh, there must be some kind of, of fake Galadriel Twitter account, right? And if there isn't, then I urge you all to go and start it. I think you should all head on over to, or I don't know, mastodon.social or whatever we're all supposed to be using now because Twitter is a dumpster fire catastrophe. Uh, yes, I, someone should start a Galadriel account. Galadriel, I think, would require 280 characters, though. I'm not sure that she could uh, compress that wit. And, and as much as this is a playful comment, right, I do see a certain wit and a certain playfulness in Galadriel. And that message to Gimli... 
I just love. I love how playful and lighthearted that is, particularly because, of course, the last time we see Gladwell, well, okay, the last time she's giving gifts and singing her song and, and you know, uh, if, uh, if now I sing of ships, what ship would come for me, right? There's this certain kind of insecurity in where she is in, in the world at this point, but she's passed the test. She's passed the test and remains Galadriel. Like, this is the first time in a very long while that Galadriel is herself, like completely herself. And that, I think, is a cause for celebration. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Let's wrap it up there. Uh, since I've run a full 40 minutes longer than I anticipated and given you guys a whole full-length extra session of there and back again, let me show you the final slide here. Next session, book three, chapter six, The King of the Golden Hall. As I said, this is not going to go out on Thursday. This is going to go out on Wednesday night, 10 p.m. Eastern, Wednesday, November the 22nd, 2017. The following week's session, which will be November the Thursday, November the 30th, will also be an afternoon session. Just FYI, just wanted to let you all know that that that's coming up. So if you're waiting for a Europe-friendly session, it will be the session, uh, it will be session, what is that? Oh, look, session 42 uh, will be a Europe-friendly afternoon time zone here in the US. That is going to do it, though, for this time. I'm really excited to move on to uh, talking about uh, King Theoden, Theoden King, and of course, Grima Wormtongue. We'll, we'll talk a little about him too uh, next week in chapter six of book three. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you to everyone who joined me live. And thank you to everyone who sent me emails about the, uh, about the Amazon announcement. It's been a really exciting week to be a Tolkien fan, as so many weeks are. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care. Good night.